So this morning we're continuing uh, our series um, entitled There is Hope and we're looking particularly at the idea that there is hope in, in the messiness. Um, and so this morning um, we're beginning in Matthew's Gospel, we're beginning in Matthew chapter 1 um, and we're going to read the first 17 verses um, of that Gospel. Just, if, I don't know how many of you are looking up a Bible just now, just a bit of Bible trivia just while you're, while you're doing that. Nothing to do with the sermon whatsoever. Some of you may well know this, some of you it might, it might be a piece of news. Um, when you have your Bible and you turn from the last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi, and you turn over a page to get to Matthew chapter 1, you've just flicked through about 350 to 400 years of history in the turn of a page. And the reason why I mention that is because at the start of Advent, Samuel introduced us to a, a new um, Christmas hymn um, called Emmanuel. And let's see how good my memory is here. The, one of the verses in that says, What fear we knew in the silent age, 400 years can he be found, but broken by a baby's cry, rejoice in the hallowed uh, manger ground. And that is a reference to this flick of a page of silence when God stopped bringing words of prophecy to Israel. And that silence was broken, not actually by a baby's cry, it was broken by the angel Gabriel doing gender reveals um, to Zechariah and to, to Mary. But interestingly, Malachi finishes with a word that says that God will turn the hearts of the sons to their fathers and the hearts of their fathers to their sons. And Matthew starts with an account of a list of fathers and their sons. So let's read... Uh, Matthew chapter 1 said the first 17 verses. So an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa, and Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram, Joram fathered Uzziah, Uzziah fathered Jotham, and Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Ammon, Ammon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel, Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel fathered Abiud, Abiud fathered Elikaim, Elikaim fathered Azor, and Azor fathered Zadok. Uh, Zadok, Zadok fathered Achim, Achim fathered Eliud, Eliud fathered Eleazar, 
Eliezer fathered Mathen, Mathen fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile until and from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we have learned one thing immediately from your word, and that is that people are important to you. We thank you that your plan of salvation that was that was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus involved this huge list of names and names that we have not even looked at or, or heard about. And so we thank you that as we come and as we read, as we want to explore your word, we thank you that you want to give us the privilege and the responsibility of being one of those names that you use for your glory and for your honor. And so we ask that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, that you would empower us, that you would encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. So in recent years, there's been a, a, a sort of upsurge and interest in, in genealogy. There are now, you can go on the internet and there are dozens of genealogy websites that will help you search parish records and military records and census records so that you can find out a wee bit about yourself and about your own family. For a number of years, there's been a television program called Who Do You Think You Are, um, where um, celebrities um, of various types um, have this done for them. And of course, the interesting thing is, do you find out whether or not someone is related to, and somewhere in the dim and distant past to someone f really famous? Do you find out that they've actually got an embarrassing rogue um, in their family tree somewhere? Um, or do you find out that actually perhaps they just come from a fairly ordinary, nondescript family. You can DNA technology has reached the stage now where you can buy a DNA kit and send it off to a lab, and it'll come back and it will give you a breakdown of the, your your ethnic origin, origins uh, and the kind of nationalities that that you actually come from, uh, which might be a bit of an eye opener. Um, for you. For some people, this is just it's a curiosity about history and about the past. But for other people, this idea of your genealogy is to answer the question, well, who am I? What kind of people did I come from? What are the people and the events in the past that have actually shaped me and shaped my family and as a consequence made me the kind of person I am today. And so that's why Matthew opens his gospel with a genealogy, a genealogy of Jesus. And he gives us two reasons for doing so. And he says right at the beginning in verse 1, this is an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, what Matthew wants to do is he wants to show us that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of King Jesus. 
Jesus wants, sorry, Matthew wants to answer this question about who is Jesus by looking at the kind of people that he came from. And what we will find today is that as we look at this genealogy, not only will we discover what this genealogy tells us about Jesus, we'll discover that this genealogy actually has important um, implications for who we are as a people today. So, the first question we have to ask ourselves is, why Abraham? Why does Matthew want to show that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham? Well, Abraham is very often called Father Abraham because he is the founding father of the Jewish people and the Jewish faith. The Bible says that Abraham that God made a promise to Abraham. He said that if Abraham would follow him, if Abraham would be obedient to him, then God would bless Abraham. And that blessing would take various forms. It meant that that Abraham would enjoy God's protection and safety. It meant that God would, would, would prosper Abraham. It also meant that God promised that God would, would forgive his sins and that they would have this special relationship with one another. But God also made a particular promise to Abraham, and he said that if, if Abraham would follow him and be obedient to him, God would give him a particular promise, a particular blessing, which is found in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 17. God says, I will indeed bless you, and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. So here's God making this promise to a man who is not in the first flush of youth, if I can put it like that. Um, We could say that he is wise with years or chronologically gifted, however you want to look at it. And yet here's God promising that he just now has no children, just him and his wife Sarah. And yet here is God saying, you are going to have so many descendants that you won't even be able to count them. And so we get a wee glimpse of how God fulfilled that promise in this genealogy. Abraham did have a son, even at his old age, a son called Isaac. Isaac had two sons, one called Esau, one called Jacob. Maybe a popular name today. Jacob was a busy man. He had 12 sons. There's a big family. Jacob's 12 sons became the the foundation for the nation of Israel. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. And each of Jacob's 12 sons had sons. And so when all of those sons had sons, you can see that very quickly how God fulfilled this promise to Abraham, starting with just him and his wife and then his son to suddenly build up this massive nation of people. And so, to be a true Jew, you needed to show that you were a descendant of Abraham, that you were one of Abraham's children, that you were part of that promise that God had made to Abraham. And if we're honest, it seems quite random. Well, you know, we don't really know much about Abraham before the Bible simply says that God spoke to Abraham. And that's the whole point. It is completely random. There is nothing special about Abraham. It's all about God's 
goodness and about God's desire and God's willingness to bless someone. And literally, it was just God picked Abraham. And like I said, it's not about Abraham. It's all about God. And so the genealogy doesn't mention this, but when you look a wee bit deeper into the story of Abraham, you discover that Abraham, although he is this man of great faith and obedience, he's not perfect. He's got his flaws. We're told that not once but twice, which shows that Abraham doesn't really learn, not once but twice, Abraham lied to people about the fact that that Sarah wasn't actually his wife. He told people that she was his sister. And as a consequence of this, God had to intervene twice to prevent Sarah from being forced into a bigamous marriage because other men wanted to take Sarah and be to be their wife. I said to you that God gave Abraham a son called Isaac. Again, what's not mentioned in the genealogy is that before Abraham had his son Isaac with his wife Sarah, he had a, a son with one of his servant girls. But when Isaac came along, his true son through his true wife, he quite literally discarded Hagar and Ishmael. He put them on a donkey with some food, slapped the donkey on the head end and let, and let it run off into the desert. Now, to be fair, I don't know whether that was just an, an act of absolute callousness or whether it was a step of faith on Abraham's part because the Bible says that again, God intervened and God protected Hagar and Ishmael. But it still says an awful lot about the character of a man that he's prepared to put a woman and a small child on a donkey and send them out into the desert with just a few days' food. Like I said a minute ago, to be a descendant of Abraham was a matter of pride for the Jewish people. They just tended to gloss over the fact that Abraham did a few questionable things. So that's Abraham. Why, though, does Matthew want to show that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham and also a descendant of David? And that seems a wee bit easier to answer. I think many of us would like the idea if we discovered that we were somehow descended or associated with royalty. David was Israel's second king. We're not going to talk about the first king because he was an unmitigated disaster. But David is the warrior king. During David's reign, Israel was defeated all its enemies and it enjoyed a peace and a prosperity that it had never seen before. Remember that God had given what we call the promised land, the land of Canaan, as a gift to Abraham's descendants, to the Israelites. The problem was the land was occupied and God said your first job is to go in there and, and is to clear these people out and then claim the land for your own. And by and large, that's what David did. And like Abraham, God made a promise to David that one of his descendants would reign as a king forever. So we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16 these words, Your house 
and your kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. That's quite a promise that your reign is never going, that the reign of the sons and the daughters of David will never come to an end. And it's easy to think that God is rewarding David for being a good king in contrast to the king that came before him. That God is rewarding David for all the hard work, for all the danger that he faced in bringing peace to Israel. But again, it's not that simple. It's very easy to miss this when you're reading through this list of names. But if we go back to verse 6 of the genealogy, you have this strange statement here that says, David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. It doesn't say that Solomon fathered so that David fathered Solomon by Bathsheba to give her her name. It's a really odd statement to make that David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. And Matthew is kind of waving a wee flag up here to point out that this is David's dirty little secret. As king, David could have, literally David could have as many wives as he wanted. There was literally no law against it. But instead of taking a woman who was free and available and eligible for marriage, David began an affair with someone else's wife, this man Uriah. And just to make things worse, when Bathsheba became pregnant, David tried to cover it up. And when that didn't work, his solution to this problem was to murder Uriah. It's the kind of stuff that is the making of a soap opera. And if you're not familiar with the biblical story, then for some random reason, there's a reference to the story of David and Bathsheba and Leonard Cohen's song, Hallelujah. But we're told that eventually David and Bathsheba had another son, Solomon. And so the genealogy continues. But here again, when you start to look into things, here is God making a promise to another man who is far from as good and perfect as he might seem. And again, it's because it's not about the man. It's about the God who chooses to bless people. It's about God's goodness and nothing to do with David. And pointing this out brings us to another thing about this genealogy, that every time, the big list of men's names here, but every time a woman is mentioned, and there are four women mentioned in this genealogy, five if you count Mary, every time a woman is mentioned in this genealogy, Matthew is trying to, is trying to flag something up. He wants you to stop and pause and ask questions. And so, again... Another statement, verse 3, we're told that Judah fathered Perez and, sorry, Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That seems okay. 
That seems fairly innocuous until you actually go and read the story in Genesis chapter 38. And what you discover is that Tamar, like Bathsheba, was not Judah's wife. Worse than that, it turns out that Tamar is the wife of one of Jacob's other sons. In other words, Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. And yet he has two sons by her, twins. I'll let you go and read the story for yourself in how this all happened in, in Genesis chapter 38. But to be fair to Tamar, Jacob makes this statement about Tamar, and that is that she is more in the right than I. That actually what happened was pretty much Jake, uh, uh, Judah's fault rather than Tamar's fault. So here we have the genealogy of Jesus, which includes, quite frankly, some incest. A fairly unsavory topic to bring into, into a sermon, but here's the reality of what this genealogy tells us. Then in the same verse, it says that Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. And again, this is something you need to look at if you read Joshua chapter 2. But Rahab is mentioned and is commended for her faith in Hebrews chapter 11, where we're also told her occupation. By faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. So again, when you're trying to establish that Jesus is this descendant of the great father Abraham, that he is a descendant of royalty, of one of the great kings of Israel. It seems a really, really odd thing to draw attention to that one of Jesus' great, 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 great grandmothers had a very dubious occupation, if I can put it politely. And then in verse 6, Sorry, also in verse 5 in the genealogy, it says that Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Unfortunately, at this point, we can draw a, a, a sigh of relief because Ruth has an entire book dedicated to her in the Old Testament. Ruth, in complete contrast to the likes of uh, Rahab and Bathsheba and, um, and Tamar, is a woman of completely irreproachable character. What's important about Rahab, and again, the reason why Matthew is mentioning her and flagging her up, is because Ruth is not, is not Jewish. She's not a descendant of Abraham. She's a Moabite, or a Moabitess. And again, when you read Old Testament history, you discover that Moab and Israel were actually sworn enemies. There was a lot of bad blood that existed between Israel and Moab. And yet when we read um, Ruth's story, she is a woman of commitment. She's a woman of faith. She is hardworking. She's committed. She's faithful. And God takes this woman, who's not Jewish, and brings her into his family, and more importantly, brings her into the family of Jesus and so what Matthew is trying to point out is that the inclusion of Ruth as an ancestor of Jesus shows that God accepts outsiders. Not just a wee, small, select group of people, but God selects people from here 
there and everywhere. And God accepts even those that might be considered as enemies and makes them part of his family. I'm not going to go through the entire genealogy. You might be relieved to know, but I just want to make one more point. We've established here that, that Matthew is saying that Jesus is descended from royalty. And so as well as David, a lot of the, the remainder of the genealogy is made up of a list of kings. Because if you're a descendant of David, you're a king. So this was a king, this one's a king, this one's a king, this one's a king. And in the Old Testament, the reigns of the kings of Israel were summed up in one of two phrases. So Ammon, who is mentioned in, sorry, Asa, who is mentioned in the genealogy, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse 11, it says, Asa did what was right in the Lord's sight. Asa is commended for being a good king like David. Sometimes, unfortunately, the reigns of the kings of Israel are summed up in a very different way. And so we're told that Ammon and Manasseh, who are mentioned in this genealogy, were told in 2 Kings, it says that Ammon did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father Manasseh had done. So what we see is that all these kings, some of them were good, some of them were bad, but all of them are still part of the family that eventually leads to Jesus. And so to, what I'm really trying to point out is that what Matthew is trying to say here is that Jesus' family line is not one of just unbridled spiritual purity, racial purity, and fine upstanding people. It's a mixture of the good, the bad, and the downright ugly. And so that brings us to this question then, not only why Abraham, why David, but it also brings us to the question, well, why Jesus? What makes Jesus so special? What makes Jesus so important if he comes from this rather iffy line of people? For hundreds of years, the Jewish people were waiting for a special messenger from God, and they called this messenger the Messiah. Messiah is just a, a Hebrew word that means anointed or a, a special one, not to be confused with a footballer. And the name Christ is the Greek equivalent. It means anointed. So Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. It means the same thing. Literally, Jesus' surname is trying to flag up who he is. He is Jesus the Christ. He is Jesus the Messiah. They knew from, from their, their scriptures that this Messiah would be a son of David and he'd be a son of Abraham. They knew from Old Testament prophecies, some of which we read at Christmas time, that he would be a great teacher, that he would be a great ruler, that he would be a great prophet. And they kind of struggled to figure out how one person could actually be all of these things. But what they particularly believed is that regardless of how you viewed the Messiah, what they really believed was that when the Messiah came, that what was going to happen was, first of all, that the Messiah would reward the Jewish people for being good, faithful sons of Abraham. 
And the second thing they believed was that like the warrior King David, that when the Messiah came, that the Messiah would put an end to all of Israel's enemies and that they would know peace and prosperity under the eternal rule of this Messiah. That's what they were looking forward to. What they got instead was Jesus, born in a stable instead of a palace. Jesus, who might be the son of a carpenter, but, well, there's been rumors about what really happened there for years. They got Jesus, who didn't, who didn't hang out with the, the rabbis and the teachers and the Pharisees. They got a Jesus who hung out with prostitutes. There's the influence of Rahab again. They got a Jesus who hung out with the worst kind of people that good, upstanding, spiritual, religious people would have absolutely nothing to do with. They got a Jesus who caused so much trouble and anxiety for the religious leaders of the day that eventually, to quieten things down, they put him to death along with two criminals. They got, a, they got a Jesus who, could be, who couldn't have been any further from the idea of a Messiah if he had tried. But the Bible sees things differently. Galatians chapter 4 says this, When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. In other words, the Bible says Jesus is the Messiah. He may not be the kind of Messiah you were expecting, but he is the Messiah. He is God's chosen one. And he came not to be worshipped and adored like some kind of celebrity. He came instead in humility to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins so that we could receive the blessing that up until now only the Jewish people had, and that was that we could call not Abraham, or just Abraham, our father, but we could call God our father. That God wants to bless us, not because of who we are, not because of what we've done, but because of who God is, and because of what God does. And here we are 2,000 years later. The story of Jesus the Messiah is not just some nice historical event that's now done and dusted. The story of Jesus the Messiah continues even now. And so in Philippians chapter 2, because of Jesus' humility and sacrifice, it says this, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so here is the real message of Christmas that was mentioned earlier on and that is that Jesus has come once but he's coming again. That he is coming back for his family. And the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is not why Abraham, not why David, and to a certain extent not even why Jesus. The question we really want to ask ourselves this morning is, why us? Because the promises that God has made to Abraham and to David have been fulfilled through Jesus. The promises of blessing, the promises of forgiveness, the promises of God's protection and God's guidance are available to every single one of us this morning. You might be proud of who you are and of what you've achieved. You might have good reason to. You might be proud of your family and your family history. On the other hand, you might be thoroughly embarrassed when you look at your own life and the things that you have said or done and the things that perhaps you don't want other people to know about. You might be thoroughly embarrassed about your family. People have changed their names and moved away and everything to get away from any kind of association with their family. You might not actually have a family or you might not actually have a clue what your family history is like. But this morning, through faith in Jesus, every single one of us has this opportunity to belong to a, to a completely new family, God's family. And just as we've seen this morning, just as Jesus' physical human family wasn't good and perfect, then the reality is that Jesus' spiritual family is not good and perfect either. We are also a mix of the good, the bad, and the ugly. But we're a wonderful mix of the good, the bad, and the ugly, are we not? We're not perfect. But we are a work in progress. That's why we need to be patient with one another. That's why you need to be patient with me, and I will do my best to be patient with you. Advent is not about just remembering a dead hero. It's about worshipping a living king. Just as Jesus came once, the Bible says that he will come again, not in poverty, not in humility, but as a victorious, eternal king. He is that fulfillment of the promise to David of a king who would reign forever. I said earlier on that God made a promise to Abraham. He said that if Abraham would follow him, that he would have so many descendants that they couldn't be counted. God added to that promise and he said that through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. And that's the reality that we enjoy today, that we can know God, that we can be in a relationship with God, that we can be accepted by God not because of who we are, but because of who he is. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what we've done or what we've not done. It doesn't matter where we have come from. 
But God gives us this opportunity to be a part of his family. I'm going to digress here at this point. One of the things that blesses me about this church is that a number of years ago, there was a scripture given to this church that says, my house will be called the house of prayer for all the nations. And then I came back to this church a couple of years ago and I discovered that somebody has painted a mural in the porter cabin next door that says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And one of the things that blesses me, I used to say you could stand in, on, on Princess Street and shout in any language and somebody would answer you. And one of the fantastic things about Denison Baptist Church is that there are so many languages spoken in here. There are so many people from so many different places and so many different backgrounds. We are a physical embodiment of that blessing to all people. And it's fantastic to see. Right now the Bible says that the return of Jesus not just the son of Abraham or the son of David, but the return of Jesus, the son of God, is on hold. God is deliberately waiting to allow as many people as possible to have their name added into God's family tree. Think about the fact this morning that what the Bible is effect saying is that God fathered Andrew. God fathered Mark. God fathered Abigail. God fathered Jane. That's what the Bible has given us the opportunity to be able to say this morning, that we can belong to a whole new genealogy that doesn't go back to Abraham. It goes back to God himself. When Jesus came the first time, the proud were horrified to discover that actually God wasn't proud of them. When Jesus came the first time, those that were ashamed of themselves were amazed to find that God wasn't ashamed of them. But God wanted to be with them. That God wanted to love them and change them and show them what he made them to be. God wants to come into our lives and to change and transform us. We've just had a wee baby boy born as part of our family in the past couple of weeks. We're going to celebrate wee Eleanor's first year next, next week. What's the one question that folk always ask every time they meet a, a new baby? Who's he like, or who's she like? Like a mum, or they like their dad? And when we ask Jesus to come into our lives, when we commit ourselves to following him and obeying him, God begins a work in us. And so the challenge is that when people look at us, as we let God work in our lives, can people look at us and say that we're just like our dad? We're just like our Heavenly Father because of what we say, because of how we act, because of how we treat other people. 
that new life, that new family can be ours today and all we need to do is ask. And if you haven't made that step this morning, whether you are here in church this morning or where you're watching online, we would like to give you that, explain to you how can you have God as your father? How can you begin that process of, of growing up to be a child of God and to be like Jesus? That's what God wants to give you this morning. Again, can't say this enough this morning, not because of who you are, not because of what you've done or not because of what you haven't done, but simply because that is who God is. That's what God wants to do for you as he's done for countless people before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you this morning that we serve and we worship this amazing God, a God of infinite holiness, of infinite goodness, who takes the goods and the bads and loves them, forgives them, but changes and transforms us. And we thank you that at this time of year that we not only look back to what you have done, but we thank you that in faith we look forward to what you have yet to do when the glory and the majesty of Jesus will be revealed. And when who we are and who we belong to will be truly revealed to all the world. And we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.